The Living Traditions Festival is back Friday, May 17th through Sunday, May 19th at Washington Square Park in downtown Salt Lake City. You will find a global food court, live music, performances, art, workshops, Bohemian Brewery, and stuff for kids. Full disclosure, this is my favorite Salt Lake Festival. For details and to see the full program, visit livingtraditionsfestival.com or find them on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. In September, city and state officials gathered downtown to make a big announcement. Salt Lake City is getting its first sanctioned homelessness camp. For now, it's being called a temporary shelter community, and it will be at 3rd South and 6th West, kind of near the Rio Grande. There are a lot of details to iron out here. For example, the state has yet to pick a service provider to run camp operations. But here is what we do know. Our city council is looking to Denver's sanctioned camping program for inspiration. So today, we take a peek at Denver's program so that we can know what to anticipate. It's Monday, October 23rd. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Kyle Harris, you are a reporter for Denverite in Denver, Colorado. Salt Lake City is launching its first ever sanctioned camping program, also the first ever sanctioned camping program in Utah. And they're calling it the quote-unquote temporary shelter community, which one city council member said he looked to Denver's program for inspiration, which is why we've got you here today. What does Denver's sanctioned camping program look like? So right now we're kind of in a transitional phase where the city is expanding that program. But I'm going to kind of walk you through what the first ones that we've seen are like. Yeah. How did it start? Yeah, so you you have a plot of land. Maybe it's donated by a church or a synagogue or something like that. They take the plot of land. They put up these air-conditioned, heated tents on it. There is some sort of social service provider who basically runs the place, and people have their own individual shelters. It's fenced off typically from the public. There is some public buy-in process ahead of one of these things being set up. The follow-up questions I have are like, what kind of services are offered at this site, and what are the rules? So right now, and I'm going to kind of jump into the present if that works, uh, Denver has this thing called House 1000, and the mayor is working with the community, nonprofits, et cetera, to set up these micro communities, which could include either pallet shelters or tents and that sort of thing, or tiny homes. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a nonprofit that runs them. They're going to have a variety of services. So that could include things from like job placement, um, treatment for mental health issues, for substance abuse. Other forms of structures. I mean, you have kitchens, you have food coming in. Mm. The idea is to have everything you need as a human being in one spot. So if you're living on the streets or you're living in a traditional shelter, you might spend a good chunk of your day wandering around the city trying to access services at different sites. What the mayor is saying with these micro communities is that it's kind of a a one-stop shop for all of that. And so People are going to be living there for a while, and the idea is they're going to transition into some sort of more permanent or more stable housing. In terms of rules, rules are really interesting. So, um, you know, at my house, I can have a friend over, right? And I don't have anyone telling me whether or not that's okay. 
Uh, in the micro communities, as I understand it, they're basically saying you either can't have guests at some of them or if you have guests, they have to be vetted by some sort of security. Uh, drug dealing is not allowed on the premises. Public drug consumption is not allowed on the premises. You're not allowed to be like cooking drugs, dealing drugs, that sort of thing at these sites. Oh, that's interesting to me because something that comes up a lot when we talk about homelessness is the idea of safe use sites. Like there are cities that have adopted safe use sites. And I was curious if Denver's sanctioned camp was a safe use site. It sounds like no. It is not a safe use site. Colorado has a law prohibiting safe use sites. Oh. Denver has a law that says they'd be okay if the state uh, let up on that hmm. law. So currently we don't have um, safe injection sites, safe use sites, anything like that. What we do have is a, a strong commitment to housing first. So the government is very much committed to the idea of getting people into a place where they can stay, where they can get well, and then maybe think about accessing those services. We have naloxone, we have Narcan, uh, those are opioid reversal drugs. You know, people carry those around town all the time. And, you know, not just EMTs, EMSs, not just librarians or city workers, but everyday people have access to those mm -hmm. too. Um, so in a way, some of the benefits of using in a safe use site are, are widely available in the city, hmm. uh, even if you don't have a doctor or a nurse there while you're um, using we're big fans of naloxone here at CityCast Salt Lake. We did an audio guide to how to identify an overdose and administer naloxone, which I'll put in the this episode show notes for anyone who wants to listen. But what other shelter-type resources are available to people? Like, say, this sanctioned camp doesn't feel right to you. Where else can you go in Denver? All right. So traditionally, we've had group shelters. These are large open rooms. There are some services there, but it's traditionally been the kind of place you go for 12 hours. More recently during the pandemic, they open them to 24-7, so you don't have to necessarily check in every night if you're staying there. Some people have access to motel rooms, hotel rooms that have been converted. Hmm. Uh, you can get vouchers for those. And then as part of Mayor Johnston's House 1000 plan, they're also moving entire encampments into hotels and motels the city has purchased. It's happened once so far, and they're trying to purchase another one as we speak. But that's one possible outcome. There are caseworkers in town who will also help people broker relationships with their own family or their friends and help them find housing situations that are much more like driven by the community. And there are a lot of people who live in encampments on the streets, unsanctioned encampments, essentially small tent cities lining the sidewalks. And under previous Mayor Michael Hancock, uh, those didn't have things like trash collection services. So often mm. there was a trash crisis at them, right? Yeah. Uh, Mayor Johnston has come in and he has actually started bringing some sanitation services to encampments to help keep them clean. Uh, while he tries to, quote unquote, resolve them or remove them. And his whole idea is like, I'm going to move every person living in one encampment into a micro community, into a hotel, into a place where people can keep their social networks and the encampment itself can be permanently closed. What the mechanism is for permanent closure is uh, still fairly unclear. Well, my understanding is that Denver's Safe Outdoor Spaces program started during the pandemic. So it's been a couple years-ish. How are Denver officials measuring the success of this encampment? So I would say even before the pandemic, there were tiny home villages and stuff like that being experimented with that kind of led toward the safe occupancy site movement. 
how successful are they is a really interesting question because the question is like, what's the measure of success? Are we talking about right. a person having one night off the street or a couple weeks off the street? Are we talking about someone moving from a sanctioned encampment or safe occupancy site into permanent housing? Hmm. What we found is nearly half of the people who are staying in encampments wind up back on the streets at some point. Now, there are two ways you can look at that number. One is that that's horrifying. The other way of looking at the number is, wow, roughly half of the people are actually moving toward permanent housing. Yeah, a true glass half full, half empty. Exactly. You can slice it and dice it how you like. Um, The fact is there is some success from that. The place I've seen the most success in terms of these kind of individual shelters are in motels and hotels that were opened up during the pandemic. And speaking to residents of those places who stayed there longer and were able to close the door, have a lock, maybe set up a small TV, decompress and breathe, a lot of folks who had been struggling with pretty profound addiction issues and mental health issues that I spoke with found sobriety in those spaces by their own volition Mm. and were able to maintain mental health treatment regimens that kept them functional and active and productive and employed. So that's another thing that's been really interesting to watch is is the more someone has something that looks like housing from the reporting I've done, the more stable they are, the healthier they are, the less likely they are to engage in in behaviors that might up in someone's afternoon or day or their own life, right? Right. Do we know how many people have moved out of the specifically the sanctioned camp program and into housing? Like I hear you saying roughly half. Do we have numbers? All right. So I'm looking at a story that Kevin Beatty reported, which looks at the Colorado Village Collaborative, which is one of those safe outdoor sites. Okay. And that one has seen 469 folks exit. Of those, in terms of outcomes, just over 50% are unhoused. Around 8.3% are in stable housing. Nearly 32% are in permanent housing. For 4%, it's unknown. Another percent died. And just over 3% are in uh, criminal or medical institutions. So really, with with that breakdown, you're seeing about 50% of people still unhoused and 31% of people permanently housed, another 8% in stable housing. Whenever posture comes up in conversation, we all do that thing where we immediately sit upright and pull our shoulders back. Did you do it just now? I did a movement session with Chandler at Embodied Patients, and after a few gentle corrections, I was surprised to find sitting up straight is incredibly easy. Chandler's practice combines over a decade of study in yoga, Pilates, and the Alexander Technique. So why should you invest in your posture? Let's start with the link between better posture and better breathing. Whether you're returning to activity from an injury, looking to manage pain, or just have the sense things could be a little easier, Chandler will teach you to create sustainable movement habits so that you can enjoy the things you love for longer. Maybe that's running marathons. Maybe it's walking the dog. Visit embodiedpatients.com to book a session with Chandler and give yourself the gift of your own attention. 
spring is when leases expire, and if you're looking for a new or better apartment situation, here's the scoop at Ico Fort Union. Fort Union is Ico's newest build in Cottonwood Heights off 1300 East and 6720 South. And as they say in real estate, location, location, location. Ico Fort Union puts you 10 minutes from the mouth of Big Cottonwood Canyon and central to all the Fort Union shops and restaurants. But the complex is located on a dead-end street, so you get peace. Ico Fort Union offers studio, one, two, and three-bedroom apartment homes, plus these very cool three-bedroom work-live apartments. So if you're starting something new, you can live above your business space. Amenities include a pet spa, a spin loft, a bike hub, and EV charging stations. And they are signing leases right now. So visit liveatfortunion.com for a tour. I'm curious about public buy-in around this program. Because with homeless resources, it feels like there are always concerns, some warranted, some not, about community impact. So how do neighbors of Denver's sanctioned camps feel about them? Public buying is really interesting because people in theory love the idea of ending encampments, specifically unsanctioned encampments. Mm-hmm. So they're excited about that. People often are driven by a real moral commitment to see people housed. And the moment their own neighborhood becomes the site of that, there are concerns, Hmm. right? So there are concerns from business owners. And they'll say, well, we're seeing a huge amount of shoplifting. We're seeing feces outside of our restaurants or our businesses. We're seeing vandalism. And they're concerned that by creating a sanctioned encampment, that that will actually increase or that the city will be somehow complicit in the crime that they've been dealing with. Yeah. Um, So there are concerns like that that I hear. There are concerns that there is a heightened level of crime in the safe occupancy sites, in the micro communities that goes underreported or unreported Mm. uh, to kind of juice the numbers. I am not saying that that's the case, but it is a concern and a criticism that, that you hear in some of the community meetings. There are other people who are quite excited about being able to help out in their own communities, and they want to figure out how do we volunteer at the micro community? How do we invite these people and welcome them into our neighborhood? And historically, with some of the micro communities that we've seen here, what you tend to see is a lot of pushback in the early stages. The communities are set up, they're well run, they're fairly ruly, and people are coming and going. And the neighbors kind of either don't notice them or are actually quite happy to have some new neighbors. Mm. And so that's the narrative you hear from from the mayor, right? That these things work, that there's success. I was outside a church recently that had hosted one, but it was no longer there. And there were still some grumblings among neighbors about what that had meant for the community. And, you know, that neighborhood had actually sued the church that was hosting the um, safe occupancy site. So there's a lot of conflict. There are a lot of clashes, as there often are with neighborhood issues. Yeah. But ultimately, I think people learn to live with their neighbors more or less well. Yeah. Right. Would you say it's a bit of a fear of the unknown? Like now that people in the city are more familiar with these sanctioned camps and what they mean and what they can look like, does it feel like public sentiment's a little bit more receptive or are things... Like, does it kind of shake out to be really similar to how it was before the program was up and running? 
Well, I don't think, you know, we're, we're in a city with more than 700,000 people. Yeah, true. And Y'all are big. I, I don't know exactly. We're big, and I don't know exactly how many of these sites we've had, but, we you know, they're not everywhere. Right. So people haven't necessarily actually seen them firsthand, mm. visited them. They may have never walked by one, and a lot of people don't pay attention to the news or reporting or um, political issues. So <laughs> they're like, oh, my God, what's opening up in my community? So I guess what I'm saying is people aren't clued into what it means. Hmm. Now, this mayor that we have has been on a ferocious tour of neighborhoods to talk to people in the community about his plans, about how he wants to end homelessness, about uh, his House 1000 goal, housing 1,000 people by December 31st. Many nights of the week, he is out in communities, in neighborhoods, hearing directly from people who are going to be affected by whatever safe occupancy sites, micro-communities might be coming, and people who've also been affected by uh, the encampments that are currently around the community. So I think there are people who are afraid of the unknown, but there are also people who have very bad experiences with unsanctioned encampments. And so they're sort of afraid that the city is somehow doubling down on the culture of an unsanctioned encampment rather than creating actual housing solutions. Ah, That's not the mayor's goal, but that is a fear. Hmm. Yeah. Well, on the note of your mayor, he's been coming up here a lot because we are in the throes of a mayoral race. And one of our candidates says that there are a lot of similarities to what he's proposing compared to your new mayor, Mike Johnston, and his approach to homelessness. Mayor Johnston declared a state of emergency around homelessness after being elected. And he has set a goal to house, as you mentioned, a thousand people by the end of the year. How's it going? Is it doable? All right. So as of last night, which was Tuesday, October 17th, and when people are listening to this, uh, they were at about 175 people housed so far. And but okay. the definition of housing is not the federal government's definition of housing. It's really somewhere indoors where someone's staying. So this could include the micro communities we've been talking about. It could include motels. It could include family and friends. And it could also include group shelters, those traditional homeless shelters. Um, so the 175 represents that. Now, to be counted in the House 1000 plan, you have to have stayed indoors for a total of 14 days, which is not a very long time, right? So like I was in Massachusetts for two weeks this year. That does not make me a Massachusetts resident. Being indoors for 14 days definitely doesn't make you not homeless. Um, The administration had to pick some number for success. And they say their goal and their intent and their moral obligation is to ensure people have long-term, preferably lifelong housing. Mm. So that's their intent. That's their goal. The number, though, the metric that they're using is 14 days. Yeah. So there have been a lot of questions and concerns about that metric. City councils push back on that. Uh, there have been questions and concerns about what it means to say you're trying to house a 1,000 people in X number of months and include group shelter in that. I mean, it sounds like... I- to some critics, that the mayor is maybe trying to keep people from being visibly homeless, but maybe not getting at the root cause. So those concerns have have risen. Mm. The other thing that's so interesting when you say this about the, the mayoral candidate in Salt Lake City is that 
in Denver, I mean, last night I mentioned this, that in Salt Lake, someone's talking about Mike Johnston as, as a model and this model that y'all are working on. And I was talking to, to Cole Chandler, who's one of the higher ups on the housing strategy. And I was like, Cole, is, is this actually a model? Like, would we call this a model yet? Or is this kind of a work in progress and something that's being tested and experimented with? Uh, and I don't think he was quite confident enough to call it a model yet. So Denver and Mike Johnston always refer back to Houston and what the city of Houston has done. And in our mayoral election, which had 17 candidates and was a beast to cover, um, Johnston and several others kept nodding back to Houston. A critical difference between Houston and Denver, and I don't know how this plays out in Salt Lake, but I'm sure you do, is that in Houston, there actually is housing supply for people who want it. In Denver, we have a massive shortage of housing supply and a lot of policies that make it pretty hard to build new housing. So that's a, a pretty stark difference between Houston and Denver. Yeah. I would imagine each city, each politician will have their own ways of, of defining housing, defining shelter, setting goals, setting metrics that are more or less meaningful. Uh, but I, I'm not sure I would feel comfortable calling what Johnston's doing right now a model as much as, from his perspective, a rigorous, morally driven attempt to house a thousand people. That's a work in progress. Yeah. And he's in so many daily conversations with people that it, and and says he's open to kind of shifting how he's thinking about things based on the, the feedback he's getting that. I would say it's it's something that's happening, uh, but we don't really know what the outcomes are yet. Well, it's interesting because it feels like Denver is a few years ahead of Salt Lake City and Utah when it comes to homelessness. And I don't mean in terms of success necessarily, though, again, your population is quite a bit larger than ours, quite quite a lot larger than ours. But in terms of like some of the programs that we're eyeing having been implemented in Denver, you've got the tiny homes that we've been after for years. You've got the sanctioned camping sites. You're converting motels to housing. Those are all things that we are working on. So what's the lesson? Like what should we be taking away from your, su your successes and your failures? I think that's a great question, and I'm not sure I'm fit to give you a great answer. <laughs> what I would say is that cities across the country are dealing with these issues. Cities across the country are experimenting with all of these different types of housing. I think Denver's doing that. It appears to me from my reporting that people do better when they have a private place with a door they can close and some basic human dignity. And people are going to do better with housing. Right. So I, I think from a policy perspective, try things, see what works. Right. Be agile. What, what I like about Mayor Johnston, and I think this is something that stood out in all of the conversations uh, in the mayor's race, is that of the candidates, he was one of the most morally driven on the issue. And having a moral commitment to ensure every person is housed creates the political will where you can at least experiment with solutions and see what might or might not work. A moral commitment is really different than a political commitment. And the tension I think we're going to be following with, with Mayor Johnston 
is whether he lives up to his moral conviction. There's the moral question, then there's the political question. And when he sets numeric goals, is there a political push to make those goals achievable in a way that maybe doesn't match the moral commitment? So we're going to be looking very carefully at that question. But I will say any individual who goes from living outside, risking freezing to death or dying of heat stroke, who could be stabbed, who could be shot, who is overdosing on the streets multiple times in a week. The the folks I know who've been in that position and have moved indoors are doing better. Yeah. Denverite reporter Kyle Harris, thanks for being honest with us. Yeah, I hope, I hope this was helpful. I, I really hope to come out to Salt Lake sometime and see what's going on there and maybe... <laughs> Maybe you all will have uh, wins and successes that that we're still aspiring toward here. We would love that, given that you are a nemesis city and we're always looking to defeat you. <laughs> well, defeat us, please. There was hope that last week Utah officials would nail down a service provider to run operations at our sanctioned camp. But the state's six-person review committee has just canceled their request for bids without picking one. The committee claims that none of the proposals have met their requests. We do know that Unsheltered Utah and Nomad Alliance were among the applicants. So where do we go from here? Because the plan was to get this thing up and running by November. But now a new request for bids is not expected until the end of this month, which means a selection by the end of November. Mayor Mendenhall told the Salt Lake Tribune that she's disappointed, but the city is still committed to the success of this program. We know this sanction camp is particularly important to the Salt Lake City Council, who have already voted to allocate $1.5 million towards its success. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye.